Hi, Jasmine. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Hold on, I can't hear you. You might be on mute. Are you on mute? No, I don't think so. Okay, now I can hear you. There you go. Okay. Hi. Hey, today we have with us attorney Jasmine Mize. Uh, Jasmine is a D.C. area civil rights and criminal defense attorney. She currently is an associate professor of CUNY law, teaching subjects of criminal law, criminal procedure, and civil rights litigation. Most recently, Jasmine handled class action cases as a senior supervising attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Her accomplishments are many. Additionally, Jasmine has spent eight years as a public defender on the state and federal levels. Her personal page will be listed below if anybody wants to know more about her. Welcome, Jasmine. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I am very grateful for that very nice, warm welcome. And appreciate, <laughs> appreciate that. Appreciate that. Your accolades are so many. We'd have been talking for 10 minutes. Oh, that's very kind. That's very kind. You're very accomplished. Thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Um, today, the title of today's show, as you know, is Racial Disparity in the Federal Criminal Sentences. Uh, and that's something that's dear to my heart, uh, being an ex-convict myself. Right. And I just feel that um, the climate now is where we need to address, I mean, actually look for resolutions and things like this because there's a great disparity in the uh, in the sentencing. I think the whole judicial process between how blacks and whites are treated. Uh, would you agree with that? I absolutely do. Um, you know, I, um, as you mentioned, um, you know, I was a public defender on both the state and the federal level um, for uh, the beginning of my career. And um, there's nothing like um, feeling and receiving and understanding the power of the government um, in the criminal justice system. Um, it's mm. immense. It's overwhelming. It has an intensity that I think many people don't know unless you've been standing there, you know. Um, sure. And so I would absolutely agree um, uh, um, the the manner in which and the policies that are implemented um, have certainly uh, brought us to a very dark place, I would say. Um, and that's why a lot of people don't even like to refer to the criminal justice system as that. They say criminal legal system, um, because um, as we'll get into, I know through your, your questions here, um, there are so many discretionary points in the system that impact uh, vulnerable communities, people of color um, in intentional ways. And we only really see some of the sort of results, the conclusory kind of events, but there's mm -hmm. so many things that happen along the timeline that are problematic and are worthy of discussing and uh, reform. You mean, you mean the whole process itself, is that what you're referring to? Yes. Just not the specifics of a disparity, but the whole, and I don't want to say systemic, but that's what you're kind of implying process oh, in and of itself. Absolutely. So, you know, um, you know, lots of folks land up land in court um, and that starts uh, a particular process uh, that we think of as sort of an adjudicatory, adjudicatory process. Right. The judge and, and the, the uh, prosecutor kind of play these roles um, and kind of bringing about a resolution to a criminal charge. Um, but there are so many things that happen before somebody lands in court that have to do with the decisions of law enforcement um, that are also, you know, it's like peanut butter and jelly. And I'm so sorry for my dog there. 
So, you know, I, I think of um, the, the criminal process as sort of having two parts. Uh, the back part is the adjudicatory, adjudicatory process where you're, um, you know, you're in court and the, and the, and the, the, end of, the end event is the sentencing, you know, the conclusion of a criminal case. Mm -hmm. But the beginning half, in my view, is the um, investigatory or the law enforcement piece of it that um, bears uh, examination as well. So it's, it's peanut butter and jelly. It's two parts to the same um, uh, um, system, and they both kind of work together um, to um, kind of be, um, you know, the, um, the, the systemic issues that we're talking about. Uh, we have a couple of fun facts here. Um, we're just going to use these for background. Uh, black men constitute 6% of the U.S. adult population, but approximately 35% of the prison population and are incarcerated at a rate six times that of white males. This is from a 2012 report. I don't know how much that is de-escalated or increased, but you can see the disparity and just sure. in the sheer numbers. Another fact is Blacks receive sentences that are almost 10% longer than those of whites arrested for the same crimes. Yep. So what? this is just a little snapshot of what you're saying, that there's a, there's a big problem and I'm, I think I'm going to have to touch, this is going to get a little sensitive here toward the end, because mm -hmm. we're going to have to talk about the real root causes of where this comes from. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe that in order for there to ever be any kind of resolution, I don't know if there'll ever be an ultimate resolution, but because of the depth of what perpetrates all this stuff, but to, to begin with, there has to be some honesty and some um, accountability. And I think that the only way that that can ever happen is if, uh, individuals admit to what is the truth. I mean, okay, it's it's it is what it is, but how do we move positively, move forward? So that's the uh, that's actually the platform for this conversation. Is you know, I'm here, and I hopefully you're here to look for talk about the problem, but perhaps look for some resolution and see what we can even get other people's you know wheels to thinking and you know kind of you know hold on to these truths. And maybe take it and say, okay, there maybe we do need to do something and, and take a look at it. To, to reinforce what we're talking about now, I have these video clips that I put together, and we're going to kind of break them down a little bit, and you tell me what you think. Okay. Major developments in the prosecution of those rioters involved in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Tonight, a judge has issued the longest sentence yet. This went to a former New York City police officer who assaulted another police officer. More than a year and a half after the Capitol riot, nearly 250 people have been sentenced for their roles in the insurrection. But former NYPD officer Thomas Webster, seen here holding a flagpole, will now serve 10 years behind bars for injuring a D.C. officer. Everybody, we're going to begin with a news alert out of Washington tonight. A D.C. judge told a Largo man that you made a big mistake and then sentenced him to the longest prison time yet for the January 6th Capitol riot. More than five years, Robert Palmer is now headed to prison. Jacob Chansley, the self-proclaimed QAnon shaman, has just been sentenced to 41 months in prison for his role in the January 6th Capitol riots. He was seen entering the Senate chamber with a spear. Uh, prosecutors say he led a group of rioters in a prayer at the dais and left a threatening note to former Vice President Mike Pence. Chansley pled guilty to one count of unlawfully obstructing an official proceeding, a felony. We're gonna go down and storm the Capitol. USA! 
we're all going to be up here and we're going to be breaking those windows. This was Jenna Ryan one year ago. No, you cannot take our country. A real estate broker in Dallas, she was invited to ride on a private jet to D.C. If it comes down to war, guess what? I'm going to be there. When Cynthia McFadden first interviewed Ryan for today, last January, she had just been arrested. The FBI raided my house and took my phone, my computer, and my MAGA hat. Months later, she pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor for illegally entering the Capitol. Her lawyers were asking for probation, but she continued to post on social media. You wrote, sorry, I have blonde hair, white skin, a great job, a great future, and I'm not going to jail. Sorry, haters. <laughs> I know we want to go right to that one, but let's let's break these down a little bit. Because sure. um, these really, to me, really reinforce what we're talking about here. The first one, there, the news um, um, clip is talking about the N NYPD police officer, right? Who was sentenced to 10 years. And according to all the things that we've researched, he, he's got about the longest sentence for assaulting another police officer. Mm -hmm. Now, I, we want to think that if we could change the script a little bit and had this been a Black man that had committed the same crime, would it have been something as, in my mind, light as 10 years for, for a similar offense? I'm asking you. What are the guidelines for this type of attack on a policeman? You know, you've probably prosecuted people that have attacked a policeman, whether it's on the federal or state level. Is 10 years for something like this, stormtrooping the Capitol and actually physically attacking, and, and it hurt the man, is the report. Is that a fair sentence, do you think? Well, that's a fair sentence, but do you think it would be the same if it were a black man? Well, that's a that's a that's a great question because because um, the answer is really complex. Um, so first off, I would say that kind of um, and I and I apologize if this is is a little long winded, but I think it's all important to kind of really uh, get at um, the issues here, which is these are cases that were brought in federal court, and um, you know by and large we focus on federal sentencing laws um, because they tend to have um, they tend to sort of. Um, be instructive in terms of how state sentencing regimes are crafted and implemented. So while there are 50 states, uh, there's the District of Columbia and then the federal court system, I like to say to my students, there are real, actually 52 criminal justice systems across the country. The federal court system, uh, particularly with respect to criminal, criminal charging, trials, and then sentencing, um, the way in which Congress legislates all the procedures and then the sentencing regimes are often mirrored in state systems. Um, however, what the federal system has, in a sense, um, uh, pretty uniquely, is this sort of governance over particular crimes that state systems don't necessarily have um, corollaries or um, or sort of uh, similar offenses. So, for the January six events. Um, there was, uh, for most prosecutions in those cases, a, a charge of sedition, which is only a federal law charged in federal courts. And, um, you know, various judges have opinions about how to implement it. And then most of the marquee charge that most of those uh, defendants were charged with was an obstruction of justice offense, which in some instances can be charged as a misdemeanor offense and on the state level is often charged as a misdemeanor. It, it, it was actually in one of these cases, it was charged right. as a misdemeanor. It's yeah. charged as a misdemeanor. And then some criminal conspiracy offenses in the federal court system are also misdemeanor offenses. So 
not really knowing specifically what all the indictments look like, I would say that, um, you know, a lot of these prosecutions, particularly those against law enforcement, and particularly those that got a lot of attention were like political statements. And I think judges were in positions where they use their pulpit in a way to try to message that I'm going to try to give the most heavy handed sentence here in order to send the message about how uneven the system is in general. Um, and I think they thought they were doing that. However, your question. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. They they thought they were doing what? Break that down again. Er so, you know, um, in the federal system with the federal sentencing guidelines, the way the sentences are crafted are generally premised on two things. One is what is the criminal history of the offender? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you've got no criminal history, you're in this bracket that kind of places you within a range that is typically lower than someone who's got say a burglary or a low level drug crime on their record. And then they're facing this serious offense in federal court. They're you know, triple and quadruple punished for their prior crimes and their prior contacts with the criminal justice system because of their prior record. And so you kind of look at there's this rubric or this chart that basically places your criminal history into seven categories, seven being the highest, zero being the lowest. So if you've never had any prior contacts with the criminal justice system, you're generally looking at a suggested sentencing range that's much lower than someone that's had multiple conduct, conf, contacts with the criminal justice system. And this is kind of where my analysis of your question kind of brings to bear what I said initially, which is policing and law enforcement and charging decisions are super important about what we see as far as end results are concerned. It's no, there's not a controversial statement that's to say, as you started with some of the statistics, that Black men make up the highest demographic within the criminal justice system. And most uh, um, uh, entry points that are often seen are as a juvenile offender, if you if you actually really start pulling apart and digging at like what do the statistics say? So when you ask the question, would a black male have received the same sentence as that ex-cop from NYPD? For, for all of those reasons you just stated, it, it's obviously no. Right, obviously no, because most likely statistically, you'd probably be looking at someone who has a prior criminal history, which would then elevate the range that the sentencing judge is looking at. Um, and it's become kind of um, this very sort of sterile mathematical question that judges kind of just say, well, the sent suggested sentencing range is between 36 and 48 months based on the data, the prior criminal history, and then the factors that are relevant to the charging itself in this particular case. And so while judges have to look at this prior criminal history, it starts to inform what the suggested sentencing range is. The judges um, have um, discretion to depart is the is the language. They can depart downward or upward from the sentencing range. But they, but they large, very, seldom, very seldom don't know. Right, within 90 some percent of sentences fall within the suggested guidelines range. And that's because judges wanna kind of go with this idea of uniformity. They wanna give uniform sentences with respect to similar like uh, or similarly related offenders and then charges that are brought or, you know, sort of if you're charged with these offenses, if your indictment looks like this, you're gonna get a similar sentence than someone who's similarly charged. But Jasmine, wait, let me interrupt you for a second while sure. before I lose my train of thought. So the, if the guidelines, I guess, are, I don't know the terminology for all of this sentencing guide, I guess the guidelines is, yeah. so if, 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 if they are what you say they are, the less of a prior you have, the lesser time you're going to get, and that's the, the fairness, the equity, and the whole thing, but yet and still you've said that most Blacks already have some kind of criminal background from a teenage 
from teenage from teenager, then that means that a black is in theory set up for failure. But couldn't someone say that if you stayed out of trouble, you wouldn't fall in that bracket in the first place? And they could say that, right? And a lot often, a lot of times, prosecutors do say that. You know, they'll say this is about you know folks being accountable for their history. You know, um, if you've been in trouble once before, the judge and the sentencing judge has got some right to know about it because that's what we want to consider when we think about the purposes behind punishment. One of which is deterrence, right? One of the theories behind punishment is we want to deter folks from we'll doing rehabilitate. And rehabilitation is another purpose of punishment, but it's often kind of put in the shadows. It's often about incapacitation and deterrence and sending a message. And so if someone's been in trouble before, it's kind of like you got a second chance, you shouldn't get another second chance. And so judges and prosecutors in particular tend to think of things in terms of like, if you've got a history that's gonna work against you and that makes rational kind of good sense when you think about whether or not we've got a reason to punish you in the first place. And so when I bring about the statistics about folks like the likelihood of having a criminal history that's going to bear on what the judge the sentencing judge is going to be thinking about and what they're confined to when they actually look at the guidelines and they hear the arguments from the government and they say hey this is what I think I'm going to impose in this case and for good or for bad and I would say for bad we have come to this place within the federal court system and because the states follow the feds, it's just like sort of inspirational, right? If the feds do something, if Congress legislates something, state legislatures kind of do the same when it comes to criminal justice. So while we have a federal sentencing regime, most states have the exact same thing going on. They just kind of call it by a different name. Um, the federal courts use- So, so just, for, just for clarity, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. for, but just for clarity. So whatever the feds, because we know the feds are a little bit more punitive, Right. So whatever the feds determine, the states kind of adopt that. Yes. Sort of like as a lock and step, um, you know, constitutional scholars will say there's this bit in the 10th Amendment that basically says Congress has the right to legislate things that have to do with the nation, taxation and commerce and things like that. Police power is left to the states. So the states can kind of have this free range fiefdom, 51 uh, jurisdictions across the country that can do whatever they want. But they look to Congress for guidance. And because we have a federal court system that resolves federal crimes, and we have Congress that has legislated as a matter of policy, this idea that sentencing should fit these goals, most states fall in line and kind of imitate and adopt exactly like you say, the federal sentencing guidelines, sort of the language of it and the regime of it. And by regime, I mean, there are literally worksheets that the prosecutors, the, uh, the probation offices, and then the courts look at before they impose a sentence. They look at criminal history, and then they look at this very complex scheme of points that are assessed regarding the crime alleged. So crimes of violence have higher points. Um, you know, if uh, you committed a, a white collar crime is what they call it, a fraud crime, you defrauded somebody, there's major money loss. They look at the amount of loss, how much money was stolen, how much was defrauded in these big mortgage cases, things like that. And so the more egregious or offensive the, the crime sounds, the higher the points that are assessed against the, per, the defendant for the crime they actually did. Then you look at the prior criminal history, you put together, the, it's literally a math equation uh, that gets gets computed by uh, probation officers and pre-sentencing officers, the prosecution gets it, the judge takes a look at it. And then if you're playing defense, if you're playing defense, what you've got at your disposal is basically saying, this is just, you know, kind of this sterile numbers game. This isn't, this shouldn't be a numbers game. This is a person. And judge, you've got to see this person as unique 
and you got to take into account the uniqueness and the the separate all of the the, the kind of statistics and make a sentence that's just and fair. And that's where you all, 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 all the all the other variables because there's a lot of other variables other right. than a rap sheet. Right, exactly. And there's a law that's um, 18 USC 3553 is the citation. Uh, there's all these factors. There's about 15 of them that the judge is supposed to consult. You know the personal and characteristics and history of the defendant. Uh, you know, uh, kind of tapping into the the narrative, the personal narrative. Um, but the reality is I played defense in court for all those years. And, um, you know, judges look at those worksheets, they look at the numbers, they look at the range. Okay, 36 to 48 months, 98% of my colleagues never deviate. So I'm just going to go with the formula. And I'm not going to listen to the arguments made by the defendant. And that's why, uh, when you ask the question, and I'm sorry to get so technical, but it is a technical, no, go ahead. It's, right. it's sadly a very technical game. And, a, and advocates, criminal defense attorneys, you know, the, the best of them, the most talented of them, try to find a way, they go into court and they try to find a way to take the numbers game out of the out of the, the conversation and say, this is a person. And let's look at this rationally. Let's look at this objectively. Uh, let's, let's take the sensational statistical game out of the conversation and actually have a conversation about a human being. But it's tough to do. It's actually really tough to do. And so when you ask the question, like, would a Black person have received the same sentence as that police officer in the January 6th case? It's a tough one to answer because, you know, um, Black people are treated differently by the system. And January 6th in and of itself was this unique thing where some judges want to make a statement about how terrible and egregious the conduct really actually was. Well, well, wait a minute. Wait, what kind of statement were they making? All of these people got light, light sentences. If you ask me, the last young lady, um, this Jenna Ryan, she got 60 days. Right. So that's a super light sentence. But what was probably relevant. Super in the light. That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, well, yeah. and, uh, me and that's that's kind of me being a little bit sarcastic. Right. You know, you know, but then, you know, there were judges that said, I'm going to give as much as I can possibly give being constrained by this idea that there are these sentencing guidelines. And I'm usually not one to go outside the guidelines. And so I'm not going to go outside the guidelines to even make a positive point, which is. Oh, so wait, 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 wait. So are you are you saying that these people were actually sentenced according to the guidelines that you're describing? And that's why yeah. they got light sentences? Because I mean, because the police officer may not have had a prior record. Yeah. So his it was mitigated to the nth power mm -hmm. by him going to stormtrooping the White House. Mm -hmm. Come on now, let's be real. Stormtroop in a riotous way, right? This right. is actually insurrection. I mean, some this of is, it was homicide. They killed a couple people. I mean, exactly. Seriously to commit homicide. When I looked up the word treason, this was a classic trace of treason. When you have disloyalty to an, an, an allegiance to a land or a country that you should have allegiance to. That's what that was. They had lack of allegiance. They were going to, you know, you heard what she said. Uh, you can't take my country or our country, whoever, whoever their country is. <laughs> but so 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 then that explains this then you know if people are really listening because these people didn't get any time this uh QAnon shaman the Yellowstone wolf he calls himself mm -hmm. marches in there with no shirt on a wolf's headpiece a spear with the American flag wrapped around it half naked gets up on one of the politicians' desk and writes a nasty note to the vice president. Right. If you'll notice, if we were to run that clip back, you would actually see that the police are 
like peacefully walking behind this guy. There's a police officer behind him when he goes into the chambers. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, so in spite of all of that, because he was arrested for, he was convicted of obstructing a congressional proceeding and sentenced to 41 months, which is three and a half years. There's people that have had an ounce of weed mm -hmm. or, or cocaine and be a three or two, three time offender and have got that much time. Oh, yeah. So what's going on here? All, this is all about just sentencing guidelines that are geared toward people that get into trouble? I would say that's part of it. So I want to say one thing about um, what I think of, you know, we how we kind of make sense of these light sentences. I think, you know, we're looking at the woman who got the 60 day, 60 day sentence for um, 50 days. 50 days. Um, you know, she most likely will make an assumption didn't have a criminal record. And that was based on her privilege, right? Um, and probably the way she's lived her life and where she's lived her life and what she's been able to get away with, like a lot of uh, folks do um, in certain places and spaces. And so lacking a criminal history, and the way in which the prosecutors may have chosen to charge her kind of you know, kind of go the conservative route as opposed to the heavy handed route. And they probably charged her lightly with the misdemeanor offense. Most misdemeanors under uh, federal criminal statutes under the federal code uh, call for a jail sentence of no greater than six months. So if you're charged with a misdemeanor in federal court, a DUI, an obstruction, a conspiracy, you're looking at by law getting no greater than six months as a, as a legal sentence. And then you're looking at a judge who's also then looking at the guidelines and saying, what's the recommended but, but wait, sentence? Wait, Jasmine, Jess, wait, wait. So, so the guidelines are dictate and even supersede the seriousness of whatever the crime is that you commit. Is that what you're saying? Because that's what you're saying. Because to me, stormtrooping yeah. Here's and rock how is how is how can that be? So let me and I and I also I, I also um, apologize for the lengthiness and complexity of this answer, but it's very important for why I'm saying what I'm saying, which is we got to the sentencing guidelines through a huge we're a very long journey that started kind of in the mid '80s, right? Um, in the wave of what folks would say kind of became the the real draconian. Uh, legislature of the the 1994 crime bill was pre was predated by this movement within uh, within criminal justice system to create higher punishments, mandatory minimums, punish people who had um, involvement or any kind of involvement, low level, high level, whatever you call it, with um, with controlled substances. And we had is this, this is this during the 80s when there was a big epidemic of the drug yep. infusion yep. here in the United States. Right. And so basically what folks, so that was that was part of their way of dealing with that then it was. And what was the relation point is that before we had the sentencing guidelines, we had this thing called indeterminate sentencing, which is you had the law that says you can get from zero to six months for a misdemeanor. And the judge can go you go into court and the judge can give you whatever the judge thinks can give you zero days, 120 days based on. Uh, what the judge thought was relevant with respect to imposition of sentence. You go to a prison facility and you might be able to get out, excuse me, on parole because um, you were uh, achieving certain goals in custody, right? You know, um, and so judges were imposing sentences. You would hear, you know, systems that still have parole. You get 10 years, but someone might get out in two. Um, this idea that you get this punishment, but you might be able to be released early based on how um, you would, you know, certain benchmarks you meet in prison. 
Um, then, you know, we got to a place in our culture where there was, um, it's, there were increases in crime. Um, there were increases of, 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 of violence and, and there were um, an, up, an uptick in terms of um, policing in, ter uh, in terms of like drugs and guns and things like that. And so laws started to change, punishments started to be, get more severe. And then folks, um, you know, would start to harp on law and order. People would start to harp on this idea. Someone got out of prison. They were supposed to get 20 years, but they only actually served three. And that started to um, uh, sour with respect to public opinion. And so then Congress and states that follow started saying, look, we're going to now start doing this thing where we're going to create guidelines. We need to have more uniformity in sentences. And we also have to have what's called truth in sentencing. If you get eight so, years, you serve so this, eight. This, didn't, this didn't happen before then. It didn't. This it wasn't the case. And when was that again during that time so when they started kind of the movement started developing these guidelines? Um, the guidelines are a creature of about the mid 90s. So the guidelines were put before Congress in the mid 90s. And but then they're a result of the 80s. Right. They're a result of previous years, kind of like this law and order energy that really started with, you know, the Reagan years, punishing the poor, um, punishing drug users, not just possessors and sellers, but, you know, um, you know, this energy afoot that was we're going to punish, we're going to punish um, marginalized communities for involvement with drugs and guns. And we're going to we're going to make a pariah out of those communities and we're going to impose these really heavy punishments for that kind of conduct, whether it's good or bad or ugly. It doesn't matter. We're just going to do it. Was that and a conspiracy? Is this a conspiracy I'm hearing? <laughs> think, um, <laughs> I, I don't want to be classified as conspiracy theorists, but it's working you, as designed. I'll say that it's working as designed. Okay, uh, Touche. You know, it's working as designed. And I would say, you know, people started having a major problem with this idea that you could get 20 years from a judge for something that's terrible. And then you get out in three and then we got a problem. We got criminals walking the streets. That's a problem. We can't do that. So we need to change the sentencing schemes. What we need to do is have judges impose. We need to have judges constrained to this idea that the law says you can get up to 20 years, but we're going to have recommendations. You got to stay within these benchmarks, these guidelines, and then Congress legislated guidelines. At first, they were mandatory and you had to give a sentencing within the guidelines. Then through some advocacy on the defense side, we basically said that's not fair. They're just advisory. You have to look at them, advise, and then say you can go one way or you can go left, right, or in between. We don't, it just as long as it's whatever is prescribed by the law, you can't give over the amount listed in the in the statute. And so when we, we went from a mandatory to an advisory structure, and now judges are in this mess where it's like they're in this place where all my all all the world expects me to go within the guidelines and I can't depart. I can't go away from them. So if the guidelines for this woman is probation because she stormed the Capitol, I'm really hard pressed to make a decision that's outside the bounds of what I'm being told I should do. So I'm going to give her a guideline sentence. And basically what we have is the statistics start lining up with what as again, the system working the way it's designed, which is we're going to punish certain people a certain way. And we got the math equations to prove it. And all my colleagues in the courthouse are doing the same thing. Why would I be a radical? Why would I be a renegade? Why would I give an outside the bounds sentence? Why would I do that? 98% of the time, I go in the guidelines. That's you talking about the judge or the prosecutor? The, pro the judges. They have the ultimate say, right? Prosecutors, I will say this. I've worked on a state level. I've worked on a federal level. Federal prosecutors, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to paint them with a broad brush, but... Um, you know, they have told me, you know, in the hallways of the courthouse, you know, about how they make decisions about charging. They'll tell me, they'll say, look, I'm not bringing a case unless I'm going to win. I know I'm 100% sure I got the evidence. I'm not going to bring a case that I know I can't prove 
any old day of the week. So the, the, the detectives have done all the work for me. The FBI agents have done all the work for me. I'm just going to go to court and tell the court I've, I've rest on my papers. I, I've written what I think is relevant. I'm not going to say anything. You do the work for me, judge. Prosecutors, you know, you think about the criminal justice system as this triangle. You've got defense, you've got the judge, you've got the prosecutor, and you want to think of it as this like very even triangle. Mm -hmm. But we all know that it's this outsized thing where prosecutors and judges have this like immense amount of power and you've got this very thin, you know, sort of point where um, defense attorneys, like I said, are challenged when it comes down to sentencing. Like, what do you say to humanize this person and take the numbers game out of the equation? It's very difficult to do because we have moved along this path over the last 40 years where we've, we've, we've whittled it down to a math equation. We literally have whittled it down to a math equation when it comes down to going into court and the judges and the prosecutors know it and it works at their advantage to do less work. It's, but, it's, it, but even if you, even if you could humanize the person and, and, and so that you can mitigate the sentencing, mm -hmm. wouldn't the guidelines still prohibit the, the judge or the prosecutor from, from doing that? Oftentimes it's like a, it's like an unspoken prohibition. You can do whatever you want as a federal judge. You know, I have had um, cases where I've literally said that to the judge, you don't have to give a year and a half. You don't have to give 18 months to this young guy who literally, you know, to, for, for, to simplify it made a mistake. Um, you don't have to do that. You could give him half of that. You could give him a quarter of that. You can, it's legal. It's not illegal to do it. You're confined by this idea that the sentencing guidelines, you know, are if you go outside, it's like doing something so radical that you're going to get scrutiny for it. Um, and judges do feel that. And what's dangerous, I think, because I was mentioning this kind of back where we started, mm -hmm. that state systems follow the federal system. Federal mm -hmm. judges are appointed by the president. Under Article Three of the Constitution, the president appoints every single federal court judge. And in D.C., we're not a state. So D.C. Superior Court is the local court in D.C., but those judges are appointed by the president. They don't have to worry about election. They don't have to worry about constituents. They can do what they want to do. They don't have, they have a job for life. Um, state judges are different. They are elected. And so when you think of the sentencing guidelines, the same way you think about federal court, and then you go into a courtroom just across the river in Virginia, those judges are elected by the people. And they, mm. want, they want a job after every six-year term. And if they start doing things that the people don't like, they're going to lose their job. And you have to think about that because that is what informs a lot of their decisions. They don't want, you know, violent criminals running the streets. They got to be tough on crime. Uh, they get too tough on crime, then they get attacked. Then they got to then they got to um, lighten up or whatever it is that they think they got to do in order to win their job again. Um, you know, I come from a place. I'm a DC. I'm a DC native. I was here on January 6th. I don't got no problem with a tough sentence being issued. That's the one and only time I'd say I got no problem with the tough sentence uh, for those offenders. Um, I was here. I live a mile from the Capitol. Um, and it was nothing but chaos. And it was- did you, did, you go, did you go over there? Oh, no, 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 no. Everybody who knew better stayed in the house. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, everybody who knew better knew to stay away. Um, and that's just a personal point there. But, um, you know, those judges- that are sitting and presiding over those prosecutions, those mm -hmm. are the judges that are appointed by the president. And so yeah. in my opinion, they've got carte blanche to do what they think is right in their gut. Not what the sentencing guidelines say, not what the prosecutors say to do, not what the defense attorneys say to do, but what they think is right. So wait, because this is very important. So by law, I'm saying by law, mm -hmm. 
they can actually step outside of the guidelines. Yes. Because the guidelines are just guidelines. They're not electric fences that you can't cross. They're just guidelines. So they can go either way outside the, the guidelines right. if they choose to. Right. So initially when the guidelines were crafted, they were mandatory. And then there was a case in late 90s called Apprende v. New Jersey, v. New Jersey. And the defense there was basically um, you know, starting this wave of analysis about how problematic the guidelines were, because there's a they say there's a delta between what the guidelines say and what the statute says is a maximum. And in order to go in between the two of those two things, you got to have due process of law. You got to make the government prove all the reasons why you're going to get this enhanced sentencing. And so there was a revolution within the revolution of the guidelines that basically landed us at this place where the guidelines are advisory only. The, the judges must advise them. It's basically like you got to look at it. Okay, these are the guidelines. I put on the record the guidelines are 36 to 48 months. I'm going to sentence in the guidelines or I'm going to depart downward or I'm going to depart upward. And the court has to put it on the record, whether they're going inside or outside the guidelines, but they are not mandatory. Ah, so that means that we're getting these sentencing sentences, we, me being a black man, mm -hmm. that they're telling us they need to stay inside of some guidelines when actually they have the discretion to stop, to step outside of the guidelines either way. Absolutely. True. True. That is so, that is so unfair. You know, I have this question that, and it's kind of a hard question, is the perception among, and I'm asking you this as a white woman, mm -hmm. is the perception somehow that Blacks, and I think in large part it would be because of the, the history of this country, you know, we came in as property. Mm -hmm but we're not property anymore. So is that perception from the history of this country carried forth to that white somehow in their hearts just really believe that blacks are not as entitled to the, the equities in this country as they are, the delicacies in this country, like, you know, great education, you know, great housing, you know, being able to be in a position to get the wealth that whites do get. I mean, I know that people say that Blacks have the same opportunities. I debated that one time with a scholar years ago. I wasn't really prepared for that, but I was so passionate about it. But we don't have the same chances. And you know that, I believe, because as a white woman, you're putting yourself in a little, I don't want to use the word awkward, but unorthodox, let's use that word, position to, ch to champion almost these causes. So I'm asking you, do you feel, is the really the white perception? Because you, you're around them, whether it's, you know, work or in your personal life. Do white people just feel like basically that we're not entitled to the same things that they're entitled to? Well, I mean, I definitely know that some pe white people do. And those are some white people in positions of power, unfortunately. Many white people in positions of power may feel exactly as you just described, that they don't feel that Black people are entitled to the same rights. And as you, you mentioned, the word delicacy, sort of like these nuances um, in society. And that's a well-established belief since the beginnings of this country. And they exist very well today. I think January 6th pointed that out, you know. Um, 
And there are some white people that do feel that. And then some white people, um, you know, to um, sort of thinking for whatever reason of like MLK and the letter from Birmingham jail, like these well-intentioned white people mm -hmm. recognize that there are um, problems with the way some white people view power and try to do something to kind of sometimes address their implicit bias, um, equalize society. And, you know, you want to think of those as positive efforts. Um, and then you have others that, you know, are trying to do their best to be allies because they recognize the inherent problems. Um, I like to think of myself as that last category. Um, I also want to add, as again, I mentioned, I, I was born and raised in DC. I'm the child of immigrants. Um, and um, I grew up in a city where um, the mayor's an African-American male. The city council is majority African-American. The majority of the police force is African-American. Similar, similar to Atlanta, yeah. Similar to Atlanta. I lived, mm -hmm. I recently lived there as well. Um, similar there. And I, you know, growing up, going to public school, going to even parochial schools. Most of my classmates were black um, and, um, you know, kind of trying, you know, uh, um, growing up, understanding, you know, their experience and, and trying to figure out what it means to be like an ally, to be in, com com you know, in community, in society, in a place where I have privileges that they don't and figuring out what that means. Like, what does that mean for me? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? And it's a challenge. And some white folks, you know, like I said, are the total end of the spectrum, which is they don't don't believe in equal powers to persons of color, to, to African-Americans in particular, and they are unfortunately in positions of power. You know, DC is an interesting place to kind of grow up and see that because there's an interplay between all those different kinds of people. And, um, you know, I think we're having a great conversation, a more open conversation now as opposed to some years ago about what it means to kind of check your privilege and understand that a little bit deeper and do things differently. Um, it just means different things for different people. Um, you know, when I think about the criminal justice system and the work I've done, um, you know, I tend to think of things as like, it's, 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 it's problematic on so many levels and the discretionary points are where we have all the problems. It's not just the courts, it's the police, it's the probation officers. It's, um, it's the local government that doesn't um, understand um, you know, the needs, particularly when it comes to policing, you know, it's like everybody's at a disadvantage of information or something along those lines. So it's, it's difficult to say. Um, but unfortunately, you know, you do have a situation where you got most federally appointed judges are, um, are white males. Um, well, I mean, we just got the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Um, you look at federal courts of appeals, it's majority white males. You look at every district court judge in federal court system, mostly white males, um, some persons of color, some women, not a lot, majority white males. Um, I worked across the river in Northern Virginia for a year and a half in the federal court system. Um, I think with the exception of one woman, it is all white males that preside over a spectrum of cases mostly involving immigrant people. <laughs> Um, but let, let me let me ask you, you know, that because because I, I this is all all that you're saying now is goes really back is rooted in what you said initially, and this is one of the things that I really advocate for. You said state that I think based on your proximity growing up and being around black people mm -hmm. helps you to understand black people in a way that most whites don't. 
And they, a lot of whites, especially suburbanites, get their information. If you work with a few blacks, you know, everybody has the work face on. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's not the same intimacy as, you know, you being in school and you're a youngster and you guys are developing and, you know, you're watching how black people interact and you're interacting as a youth in that, you know, in that situation um, in your workforce when you, or when you're driving and the people that are protecting you or, it, or whatever they're doing uh, are black policemen and things like that. And people in the legislature, when you have that kind of experience, I think it helps you to better understand people in general. And I think in large part, that's a great part of what the problem is. White folks, and I'm not saying this negatively, I'm just using the word is lack of knowledge, are ignorant really to the true character and personality of white of black people. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have been indoctrinated by news and all types of negative press and mishaps rather than personal experiences. And let me ask you this, your personal experiences, is that what helps you determine your career path? Yes, it did actually. Um, you know, I, um, you know, something about me is um, I'm a widow. Um, I was married to a black man is actually um, had um, uh, um, uh, uh, a fatal incident with the Metropolitan Police Department here in DC mm-hmm. a I'm couple years ago. Thank you. Um, and, you know, we grew up as kids together. We've known each other since we were late teens. Um, and um, he had several contacts with the criminal justice system over the years. Um, you know, some was little petty stuff that, you know, who knows if it would be as serious as it was then, as it would it be then now as it was then, you know, cult, time and culture changes. Um, but, you know, what, what, what year were that, if you don't mind me asking? So like the the late 90s, you know, um, uh, you know, um, before um, some changes happened with the DC government, we used to have a local prison, which was the Lorton prison facility is a notorious mm-hmm. prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's 19 years old, spent time at Lorton. Um, you know, I mean, this is a, a this is a serious um, incident in a young person's life to go to a place like Lorton um, with its uh, reputation and lore and like all of the things that you heard on this, you know, <laughs> the word on the curb was so crazy about the things that happened in Lorton. And this is a 19 year old young guy that like went there and spent formative time there for months. Um, mm-hmm. So I learned a lot about the system, knowing him and being in closeness with him. Um, and then he spent time at uh, Cumberland facility in, in Western Maryland, which is a federal facility, because after a certain period, DC offenders went to the, fe- the Bureau of Prison system because we didn't have Lorton anymore. It got closed because of its uh, reputation and, and storied uh, history there. Um, so a lot of things that I learned about the system came from growing up and like growing into maturity around somebody that had this contact with the criminal justice system. And it did inform my career choices. I started out, I was a classroom teacher, I taught high school. Um, and then one day I thought, you in, know, in, in the DC area, in the DC area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one day I said, you know, I want to, I want to be a public defender. I want to be a, a courtroom defender. Um, I want to learn like how to protect people in the system. You know, I want to learn about it. I want to do that work. So you were were initially a teacher? I was a classroom teacher, high school teacher in Mm -hmm. um, public school system here and then um, in Maryland too. Um, And then, you know, I went to law school thing and I want to be a public defender. I want to do this work. And when you go to law school, it's a whole transition of life and you learn all these things and, you know, you realize it's this career where you could go all kinds of different directions but I stayed with the the idea that I wanted to be a public defender. So I got into that community and there's a lot of 
really talented people that do that work and they're true believer people. They, they're system disruptors. Um, you know, they're, you, they're, they are very surprising community of people. They have come from different places and spaces in this world. I mean, a lot of people from the military go into being public defenders and, and, you know, it's like, you think these clean cut Marine, like white guys with blonde hair, blue eyes, and they're like public defenders. And they're like, awesome at the job. In the, in the trenches, in the trenches. In the trenches, really good at it. Like really good at it. Is that um, a different breed, a public defender? Is that a different say, breed of lawyer? You, I you think so. I would no, say, and most people that have done that work, it's like, it stays with you. You've been, you've been, you're a part of a religion. You, you believe in something different. You know about things that others don't know. Um, you've, you've held people's hands in the darkest of times. You've had great try. When you win as a public defender, you really win. Well, you the really word, the word on the street is that the public defender works for the, 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 the um, judge's office. Oh, yes, the word, that's the word, but as is, I always is that, told, is that true? Tell, tell no, true? I would say, I'd say it's a, it's a poor, it's a, it's a poor, it's an unfortunate association. Some of us work differently than others, but I would say that when I worked, I worked with folks that would almost laugh that off and be like, I'm the best lawyer money can't buy. You know, like I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, like your real, I'm, I'm your real fighter. And I work with folks in the public defender system in many places. And um, I mean, these are all people that would just like blow your mind, just blow your mind, brilliant, dedicated, doing the, doing the work and, and making it happen on the, on the, on, on the, you know, on the ground level. And so I, I learned a lot from those experiences and that's where, that's why I went to law school. That's how I developed sort of this vision of what I wanted to like do with my career. And then you reach places where you think you can do different stuff, which is how I ended up doing like prison litigation and other stuff where you want to fight the system from a different angle. Cause you just want to try something new things get old um, and you fought for housing for low-income uh, tenants yeah I did that in um, law school I taught law school in DC and um, you know there was a clinic that you know I was working with a woman who kind of like me had done government work and we were kind of disillusioned but we wanted to work with students so we did this landlord tenant work um, almost like we wanted to build a legal aid office and so we were trying something new we were jointly trying something new with our careers so it was um different but similar <laughs> i say mm -hmm. um i think you had a question about like what that what kind of clients we had and how yeah i was going to ask you because i know you know by me have been in a little bit of trouble uh and i'm actually a victim of what we're talking about this sentencing guidelines business but um i forgot what i was going to say it, it'll come back to me but i will say that um one of the reasons that I find this so near and dear to my heart right at this moment is because I've just, um, and I read some of your profile, I spent in the 80s uh, from 82 to 89, 88, 88, 82 to 88, 81 to 88, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I spent in the Alabama prison system Wow. At, at from 21 or 22 to 29 years old. And what I did was here recently, I applied for a pardon. Okay. Um, I sent the paperwork in and so forth and had the people, you know, and all of that. So I've actually was given two 20 year sentences for some crimes that one of them was robbing a young, I was young, he was young, a drug dealer, but he happened to be white and suburban. Okay. And, and reported that I took his money and didn't report the fact that it was a drug deal. So I got 40 years, but they, you know, made him concurrent into one. Okay. That was a severe crime for a person that didn't really have any criminal record. Right. So, so that's what makes me an advocate for this in the first place is because 
I, like you, have similar experiences just on the other side of the fence, you know, of why I would be concerned about something like this. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. King, he had said that based on the one time I heard him say, based on the, the um, racial history of this country, Blacks were entitled to reparations. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking you, do you feel like the injustices that have been committed against Blacks in this country, do they deserve any type of rep reparations? Oh, absolutely. I'm a big proponent of reparations. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what it should look like because I'm I think there are smarter people that can come up with better ideas than I can, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a proponent of it in theory and in practice. Um, you know, a little bit of my bio is I've done some work with, with cannabis businesses and folks who want to get into the cannabis industry um, because they I, were- I, I they, saw that. Tell, tell, tell us a little bit about that. I was going to ask you about that anyway. So, you know, a lot of people in DC, when our regulations changed a little bit and we went and decriminalization happened here in the city, but because of Congress and we're not a state, we don't really have a, a, a taxation system where it's adult use the way like California and Colorado and all these other places are doing nowadays. We're just, it takes forever to get laws passed in DC, like it seems because it's Congress, right? Um, but in any ways, um, there are a lot of entrepreneurs in the space that, you know, are kind of trying to legitimize um, their, what I call a standard market operator business, you know, people call it the legacy market. Basically, um, if you worked in the black market, as they say, and you want to go into the green market, it's this transition, um, and folks are trying to kind of learn business acumen and legitimize their, um, uh, you know, a, a, a for-profit uh, business that deals, you know, basically being in the cannabis industry and, um, knowing what we know about drug enforcement laws, uh, the war on drugs as part and parcel of the conversation about sentencing laws and the draconian punishments and mandatory minimums and all that stuff that happened in the, you know, decades ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've come to this place where there's a lot of talk about uh, social equity in the, in the industry as being sort of trying to right the wrongs of drug prosecutions and figure out a way to give priority to uh, people of color who are punished or come from communities that were decimated by the war on drugs. The conversation's gotten a little complex, which is why I say there's smarter people out there that can figure out what does reparations really look like. In the instance of the cannabis industry, I'm of the mind that all licenses should go to folks who had gotten in trouble, um, you know, and prosecuted and punished for drug crimes in the past or someone in their immediate family or someone relative who can, um, who can economically prosper from being able to get licensing within the business or just basically give a license to anybody um, and not put a cap on it so that there's no limitations in the industry. So anybody, whether you're experienced or not experienced or you're a legacy operator or whatever your history is, you can get a license. Um, and that to me- you, you, would, you would be, that would be a qualifying factor that you had, had to have had a case where you were, what are you saying like you were, you were given a unfair sentence and you were prosecuted at all for cannabis crime for a drug for a drug case for a drug crime, right mm -hmm. um, and if you so desire to be licensed in the industry to be a cultivator a distributor a, a retailer whatever your interest is that you you get immediate priority for licensing what, um, what's your what's your justification when you when you make that case what's your justification for that so i think uh, it's just you know if you think about marijuana prosecutions is sort of the gateway to a lot of other larger scale drug prosecutions, particularly in the federal court system. When you Touché. work in federal, good point. You know, the, point. the inequities are severe. And um, I talked a little bit about how juveniles get involved in the court system. And then that becomes this 
this this indelible marker on your record that becomes problematic later, even if you're not charged with a drug, drug crime, that's usually for a cannabis-related crime, at least in prior decades. And so that's a reason to um, also uh, create a system where priority licensing goes to folks that had previously been charged. Is that, um, is that do you consider that a type of reparation? I think it is a type of reparations. I don't think it's every, I don't think it's the whole kitten caboodle. No, I'm talking, about for, I'm talking about just for the people that have been convicted of cannabis uh, charges. I think it's a start. I'll say that. I don't think it's okay. everything that everybody wants, you know, and that's why um, I don't want it to, I, I think the conversation about reparations should never be limited. Um, I think in some respects, um, you know, we could be having a larger conversation about land ownership um, mm. and, and other things, particularly as it relates to the American South. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, I think the, um, the um, um, sharecropping system that, that, that emerged after slavery is something to be examined and to look at in terms of um, you know, sort of the robbery of land that happened. I never, I never got my 40 acres in the mule, by the way. My people, they never got it. Right. And I mean, that's where the conversation really started. <laughs> and there was activity to award reparations post-slavery, but it quickly, you know, kind of got it kind of extinguished by uh, white supremacists and other actors that infiltrated government right away in order to kind of preserve the Confederacy, right? Um, you know, so there's a lot of interesting things that can be done. And like I said, I think there's smarter people out there that can be like devising the measures by which we offer reparations. Um, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates, like he testified in front of Congress about ways we could do it um, a couple of years back. And that was, you know, hopefully we thought that was going to be the start of a discussion about it. But as lots of things happen, they kind of go the wayside and then we don't know what Congress is going to do. But I think there's lots of ways that we could create reparations, um, you know, um, We've done it in the past. Um, we've offered reparations to Japanese uh, victims of Japanese internment camps in World War II. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you get a settlement against a police department for brutality or instances of brutality, That's reparations. you get settlements. I mean, we can we've seen it in the court systems. We've done it in certain ways um, as a as a society. It just hasn't been done large scale. And you know, there are a lot of great minds out there that can participate in the conversation. I think Henry Louis Gates had an interesting way of evaluating like your lineage in order to establish that you're a descendant of slavery. And then what's the economic impact of it on your family is like, you know, a forensic accountant can kind of add to the conversation. There's lots of ways to do it. And I know there's lots of, like I said, smart people out there talking about it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of it, whatever I can offer to the conversation, however scant I, um, I'm willing to do it, but. Sure. You know, sure. when it comes to the criminal justice system, there's definitely data we can mine. How many people were prosecuted? When were they prosecuted? And for what crime? And if it relates to a drug crime, um, I think there's ways to establish that those were, you know, first of all, we're talking about a substance that's no longer even in, on the state level even controlled anymore. And that's why cannabis is a good place to start. We've essentially legalized something that was criminalized for so long, and it's a good it's for lack of a better way, it's a black and white area to really start the conversation. It was it was prohibited, now it isn't. And mm -hmm. we can look at what we did in the past, identify the victims of it and mm -hmm. find a way to recompense by allowing entry into an industry where they might be able to make econo have economic success. It's it's kind of like a, a a pot has a lid, you know? It's it, it fits it fits the narrative. Is there is there a market for that? 
there's, I there's mean, not, you know, when, when states legalize, you know, adult use register, you know, when it goes to the ballot and the voters voted in, like New York was the most recent one to do it. Um, the, the voters and the legislators demand that there are social equity provisions in the legis, you know, in the regulations. The problem is to your question about, you know, sort of who's in power and who are the decision makers. We don't always have a clear cut view of who's going to, you know, rubber stamp um, the the corporate responsibility that we have to we have to work into the to the regulations. No, I meant when specifically when you advocate for the fellows that were given these sentences that were cannabis related, if they wanted to break off into the business and become legal in that way, because of that injustice, uh, well, even if it wasn't injustice, because of that conviction, I'm saying, is there a market for that? Is there enough people that are interested in doing that that have been, that have committed those kind of crimes or been convicted of those kind of crimes? Oh yeah, for example, in New York, like the first round of conditional licensing afforded to cultivators and retailers in the New York state program, um, the first 200 were given to um, justice involved people or had prior records. The applications were in the 200,000s. Hmm. So we're talking about, I mean, if you only- So there's a huge market. There's a huge market, right? So there's yeah. lots of people that didn't get didn't get what they were applying for. So that would, that to me is why I think that, you know, we can't have limits on this kind of stuff. You can't just have 200 licenses, but there's a huge market and interest for it. Mm. You know what, and that, when I read that about you, I, I didn't even realize that, and I know more about it than I did in the reading, but I didn't realize that, A, there is this kind of market. I thought this was such a, a big process itself to get involved in this. A lot of people, and I think that's what a lot of people think, they just don't do it because they think that it's too much bureaucracy. But what you're saying is it's just a matter of an application and, and yeah. to qualify. Yeah, but even that suggests complexities there, right? You know, like a lot of folks are, um, you know, turned off by some of the administrative steps, the hurdles. And when you think about how um, the illegal market used to run, you know, it wasn't quite as complicated. And some folks are turned off by working with the government and don't want to go to, you know, state agencies and start getting paperwork done. They want to just do things the way they've always done it. <clears throat> There's some pluses and minuses to that, um, as there are with everything, but there is a interest and some people want to go the distance and others just kind of want it to be simpler. Hmm. I see. Well, I've, I've been thoroughly educated. <laughs> you're, you're a brilliant Oh, well, that's very nice. That's very. Yeah, nice. You have a sharp mind, and I'm not. I don't mean just from a judicial uh, law standpoint. I just mean period. You're very impassioned, and you seem to directly know what direction you want to go in life, and that's a big plus. And I want to applaud you for advocating on the behalf of African Americans because we're not so bad. And <laughs> if people would just, like Rodney King said, "God bless his soul." If we could just all get along, that's not going to happen unless yeah. people acknowledge the wrongs that have been done in this country. It's okay. Everybody commits wrongs. But the racial wrongs that have been, you know, that have been committed against Blacks, I think people that perpetrated these incidents, regardless of whether they were Black, white, or whatever, that there needs to be an acknowledgement of that and accountability. And then we can actually move forward because we would be in unison and be on mutual ground. And that would help propel us from your platform. This is my last question because I know I've held you up for a minute. Is 
I know you believe that. What are you doing or what, what could you suggest for someone else to do, for me to do or for someone else? If you are an advocate, we're talking about these disparities in the sentencing among Blacks. What can Black people as a whole do to help the situation? So I think, um, you know, there's lots of things that one could do, but there are, some of them are more difficult and complicated than others. But I think the number one thing that folks can do is be involved locally um, with respect to your uh, your local leaders and um, know, um, you know, kind of it's knowledge is power. Right. And the idea that um, you want to know um, just 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 for just for awareness purposes, um, how are your local judges um, you know, uh, how are, you know, what's the elect, you know, who, how are the, how are they elected? When are they up for election? Um, you know, local state's attorneys, district attorneys, um, folks who are in positions of prosecutorial power and that sit on the bench and preside over criminal cases. Um, who are they? How are they elected? When are they up for re-election? Do you like them? Do you dislike them? How do you, do you, do you have a feeling one way or another? Get people aware and inactive with respect to who are your local leaders, leaders in quotation marks, those particular leaders are critical to criminal justice reform. Um, they say there's 52 criminal justice systems. There's actually like 4,000 something of them if you think about cities and states across the US. Um, and your locally elected districts, district attorneys, state's attorneys, county attorneys, sheriffs, police commissioners, um, those are people that make decisions that are going to impact, um, you know, the broadest swaths of our communities. Like it's not just these national elections and things like that that have um, the most importance in your life. It's the local leaders, local law enforcement. And if you're not someone, I'm not like a proselytizing, like go to the polls person. Um, I, I do what you feel is important. Um, for active, you know, being a part of your community. But my main thing is like, know who they are. Just know who they are. Because at some point down the line, you want to be a resource to somebody else because you're going to get a phone call. I get them all the time because I'm a lawyer. Hey, I got this legal problem. Can you help me out? Um, but the, the idea here is that like, you want to be a resource to your community. So you hear that the neighbor across the street, her son got locked up, you know, like be a resource for her. Uh, answer, try to help answer questions. Uh, what can you do to be helpful? Because, because you're educated. Because you are, yeah, everybody yeah. can, you know, each one teach one is kind of like the mm -hmm. idea here, which mm -hmm. is, you know, um, it's scary to be involved in the criminal justice system. Most people are embarrassed by it. It's like, a, it's a mark of shame. You don't want to talk about it. You get isolated. It gets depressing. It hurts your family. Uh, you've got lots of people at home that are are devastated by losing a loved one to the criminal justice system. It's lonely. It hurts. Um, and the idea that we have community out there and people who really are actually interested and want to know what you're going through, uh, what it feels like is important. It makes a difference. It changes the tone. And I think that's number one thing that people can do is just know what your criminal justice system looks like, know who the players are. If you want to get involved in their election or not election or re-election or somebody new in the role, that's one thing. But knowing who they are and knowing what the system looks like and feels like is something you can do for the person next door because it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. And um, in order for people to feel less alone and less afraid, it it makes a difference that there's somebody in the community that they can talk to just to listen, you know, um, because it happens every day all over the place in every block of America. And it's just we don't talk about it. And in order to normalize it and make people feel better, 
and safer and just a little bit more seen. I think it just is about being aware and being that person that's not afraid to ask the questions and also somebody that, you know, is approachable that you can be asked a question of, you know, like come over and talk to me about what you're going through. Um, because um, it makes a huge difference in people's lives in order to feel like there's somebody out there they can speak to about what they're going through because it is very um, upsetting and heavy and intense, not only for the person going through the system, of course, as you know, but the, for the community in order to like normalize and give support and spread, you know, spread, the, spread the love, so to speak. Um, being educated in that regard goes a long way. Mm. You know, I, I actually asked someone else here not long ago that question, and they actually essentially, um, not word for word, said the same thing you're saying, become involved in your local community. Okay, so you become involved in your local community, and you advocate for this. I mean, this means, this means, this means get out and we have to do some work, though. Mm -hmm. you know, this means you have to get out and talk to people, whether it's one-on-one -on -one -on -one or have a forum at the library or however you want to do it. But so those that are educated, so they should get educated about who the prosecutors are, who all these elected officials are, because if you learn something about them, then you can make an, uh, and I'm asking you, is this what you were saying? Then you can make a, in layman's terms, and then you can make an educated decision if you become involved, and then you can become vote that decision. And ultimately, we would hope that that would make some type of change in your community as a whole. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think, you know, it's the knowledge is power aspect of it. Whether you want to go to the polls and do something kind of direct is one thing, but creating community conversation around who the people in power and the, you know, folks are mm -hmm. makes people, you know, it, it gives the tools out there for people to do what they feel is necessary and, and be empowered. You know, it's like, if you want to be the person that goes to the polls, okay, but if you want to be the person that just provides the sounding board to talk about it, that's also got a value too and you're doing your you're playing a role and you're giving you're giving strength to the community as opposed to keeping everybody siloed and separated and not knowing what each other is going through and then just lastly and then our local government because we're going to educate people here our local government how does that trickle up to the larger government how how does that work through just, just simply put how so people can say well you know wait our local people regardless to who we vote in, they're not going to really do anything because I think people don't know how that process works. Quickly, how does that work when, you, when you're voting in large part for, your, and for good people in your local community? How or does or can that trickle up to the larger, uh, to the larger politicians so that you can actually get some, some national resolution? How does that work, that process? So I would just think of, actually, as you spoke, I was thinking of, you know, what I learned in Alabama litigating against KIV and the Department of Corrections in Alabama, which is a lot of local level sheriffs and law enforcement are starting to hear the community out on the overpopulation in the prison system and the Alabama prison system, notoriously known as one of the most dangerous systems in the world, um, the most oppressive systems in the world. And because of the litigation against the prisons and how they're building these new prisons and no one wants to work for them because they don't pay very well and it's a horrible, horrific job and it's it's just it's just a terrible economic setup, the local sheriffs and law enforcement are declining to prosecute and lock people up because they don't want to contribute to the problem. And when you have local police officers that don't want to pull people over for DUIs, don't want to charge for these low-level crimes in court because they know they're just doing nothing but making the 
community members even worse off because they have to work under even worse conditions. If you keep overpopulating these prisons, you're going to have oh, even worse working conditions for these people that only their only economic choices to work for some of these prisons in Alabama because they're so isolated. That then gets translated to the Department of Corrections. They can't hire people. They have a total hiring uh, fiasco. And then folks like Kay Ivey and the senators who represent Alabama are basically like, we have a law enforcement crisis in our state because we can't get people to lock, we can't get our street officers to lock people up because they know that that's gonna affect their next door neighbor who has to work at the prison where this person is going to end up. And so it's this revolt that's happening on the ground level that then gets transmuted to Kay Ivey and others who are in a higher up and it changes the tone. And then the judges start seeing what's going on and, the, and then, you know, then it, it forces the state senators or the U.S. senators who represent the state to go to Congress and basically be like, I got a total crisis in my jurisdiction. I can't even contribute to the other conversations about this, that, and the other thing because I got this massive crisis in my community. So that's like an example from Alabama that's actually happening. Now, for it to really be a change maker, I think it has to be, the volume has to be turned up like times a thousand and it has to get 10,000 times worse in order for it to get better, but that's kind of sure. the way it works. You know, but that is happening. I, I saw that when I worked, um, you know, with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is the judges started suggesting that. Like, they'd be like, Miss Mize, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, just release the prisoners. Isn't that what the community wants? Let them out, you know, um, mm. because they don't want to send them there. Mm. They don't, the, the police officers and the sheriff's department, the deputies don't want to send people to prison because it's, um, it's, literally, it's literally harming their next door neighbor. Yeah, and not and not just that it's to it's totally unnecessary, you know. I there's I know firsthand that there's a great many people that are in prison, 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 doing time, whether it's two, three, whatever years. They really don't deserve to be in prison for what they've done. You know what oh, I mean? Absolutely. So, I guess that ripple effect everybody's feeling, and now even in the communities of those that are uh, holding these people hostage. So that's well, that's good. That means that we are making some progress, and hopefully, this Alabama thing. I think I've heard some tell of um, they're considering that actually here in, in New Georgia. So maybe this is having a ripple effect and, you know, can do a good national service and we can make some change here because it certainly needs to be some. Sure. Ms. Mize, thank you. You're absolutely you welcome. I had a great time and anything you, um, any other future topics that you uh, think of for your your um, production, I'm happy to be a part of it. Absolutely. I probably have a panel on something that will be judicious and if it's in your category, I'll certainly invite you. Okay. Well, Again, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. You have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. -bye.